Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the Special Needs Survival Podcast. I truly look forward to your thoughts and your comments about this program today. It's part of my series for our Special Needs or Disability Awareness Month, and it is the last one in a series. Um, it is on Special Needs Trust Administration or Disability Trust Administration, whatever you call your trust. And it has a lot of information, so it can be a bit overwhelming. It's an hour. It's a little longer than my, you know, traditional podcast. Um, you can also find this information for sale at our Teachable account. And um, we have the Special Needs Academy there, and we are loading lots of what I call mini-sodes like this. Um, we've got long programs, and this is one of our shorter programs. If you do decide that you want to purchase it, you can have the material for a year, which is very helpful. Um, also, besides being on the podcast, this information or this video is going to be posted in the Circle of Care. That's our private Facebook page. If you have not joined this group, please feel free to Find it on Facebook, Circle of Care, um, from special needs companies, and request to join. And as long as you have a connection to the disability community, we will let you in. So again, that video will be posted there, and it'll, it'll be there for some time to come. Okay, thank you. Hope you're enjoying Disability Awareness Month. Hey, everybody. Annette Hines here from Special Needs Companies. And today we're going to talk about the very exciting topic of Special Needs Trust Administration. So why do you need to know about administering a Special Needs Trust? First and foremost, if you are in the process of doing your estate plan or thinking about your estate plan and that it might include some special needs planning, some disability planning, and that trust that you are about to use for that special needs or disability plan is going to have some different rules to administer it. So you really need to understand what this looks like in the real world and how this is actually going to be used to help or support or, you know, completely um, frustrate in, uh, on the other side of things your disabled person that you are supporting or that you're planning for. And if you are the person with a disability and you are thinking about instituting a self-settled trust for yourself or working with your family members to plan for you, then you need to understand how this trust is going to operate in the real world. In addition, this is going to help you choose and select the right person or organization or professional to be your trustee, you're going to understand what role they're going to play. What do they need to do? And not just what needs to actually go into the document. Drafting the document properly is super important. Don't get me wrong. But you need to have an eye to how that document will be used, what will be funded, and how those funds will be used to benefit the person that you wish to support. Okay? So let's get started. We want to talk a little bit first about the fact that um, we need to do a little refresher on special needs trusts and what they're all about. 
I'm going to do this extremely briefly. If you want to know more, there are other programs on special needs planning that go much deeper into the actual drafting of the documents, what's in them. But right now, we just need to have a basic refresher that special needs trusts are governed by rules, set out by you, the drafter. And it holds and, and distributes or disperses assets for a beneficiary, not always directly to the beneficiary, but it is to or for the benefit of someone. There are two kinds of special needs trusts, which you probably already know if you're here, and they really depend on where the assets are coming from. A third-party trust is funded with other people's money, not the disabled person's own money. And a first-party trust, often called a supplemental needs trust, um, I'm sorry, let me switch that. <laughs> a first-party trust is often called a D4A trust set out by the rules that Social Security uses to govern them. And that is funded with the disabled person's own money. So our Supplemental Needs Trusts, or SNT, are generally speaking third-party trusts funded with other people's money. So why are trusts important for estate planning? Again, we go into more detail with this in our other programs about special needs planning. But generally speaking, they will help us when it comes to asset tests for certain public benefits that at this moment in time when I'm recording these videos is $2,000. We're hopeful that this is going to get raised at some point in the future, but we've been at that for a long time trying to get that asset test raised. Assets inside a properly drafted special needs trust, whether it's D4A or SNT, will not count towards those $2,000 public benefits asset tests or asset limits. But in addition, even if you're not worried about public benefits, it also helps manage assets for vulnerable beneficiaries, either for themselves, from themselves, and from others. The third-party trust, our SNT, offers creditor protection, divorce protection, and protection from other threats of liability as well. So it can be the best thing since sliced bread. So what makes a special needs trust so special? Um, so the, for the first party trust, a person must have a disability. Not true for third party trusts. Um, there's no proof of disability needed for an SNT. So technically, although it's not necessary for an SNT, why else would you use this trust? You have someone who is vulnerable and you really need to protect assets for them or from them. And public, benefit, public benefits agencies will ask these questions and they don't get the distinction between the two. Um, must have supplement but not supplant language, meaning that you know, you're going to set out that this is a supplemental trust and it's not meant to take the place of public benefits that offer supports. Does that mean that you can never distribute when it affects public benefits? Absolutely not. Your trust should be flexibly drafted, drafted to be flexible. Sometimes it's okay to impact a public benefit. 
You don't want to tie a trustee's hands. You want them to be able to make those decisions as we will get into in this program. Most important is the discretionary standard that is drafted into your trust. It must be a sole and absolute discretionary standard. The wholly discretionary standard for trustees to make distributions cannot have any language in there that talks about health, education, maintenance, and support. Once you have support in there, you have given your beneficiary a demand right, a legal right to demand money from the trust to support themselves. If that's the case, the public benefits agencies are going to count that asset against the $2,000 asset limit. You must remove that reasonableness as a standard for judicial review. And again, that reasonableness test is coming in with what, what we call HEMS standard, health, education, maintenance, and support. So you cannot have that. You have to have sole and absolute discretion. But this is the most worrisome aspect for clients who are creating these trusts, whether it's for themselves or for a loved one. Because essentially, it means that there's non-reviewable discretion by the trustee. They can refuse any demand, any request, no matter how reasonable it is. Also, lastly, must have what we call a spendthrift clause, meaning that the trust assets cannot be alienated and cannot be available to a creditor of the beneficiary. That is only for third-party SNTs, not for first-party D4A trusts. So our third-party trust is generally used in parents or other family members' estate planning. Again, third-party money. It's intended to provide supplemental living expenses not covered by other income sources. And anyone can establish it. I could do that for your loved one. I only need to create it. I don't need to fund it. There's no age restrictions to establish this trust. We could put a trust in place for a 90-year-old if we wanted to, as long as it was funded with other people's money. It's living, and that means that Others can contribute all across the board and across the lifespan, not just that one time when it's created. And as we discussed, the trustee has sole discretion over the distributions. A first-party trust, again, otherwise known as D4A trust, can only be established by certain people. The individual themselves, a parent, a grandparent, a legal guardian, or if we don't have any of those people who have capacity to create the trust, then we must go to court. And it's only been since December of 2016 that the individual themselves can create their own trust. It's generally funded with the assets of the disabled person, and that's going to be things like settlements, estate planning mistakes or errors, after discovered assets, overflow for SSI and SSDI payments not spent down, child support or alimony, although we do have to go to court to get an irrevocable assignment. And um, in rare instances, parents or grandparents can use this trust to fund with their own money and then themselves receive public benefits. We don't see that very often, but it is available to us.
Unfortunately, it has what we call a payback provision. That means that there is a lien against the proceeds or the assets in the trust. When the disabled person, the beneficiary passes away, if they've used Medicaid in any state during their lifetime, their entire lifetime, from day one that they were born, then the agency providing those supports, those Medicaid supports, can request repayment. And they have a lien or they are a creditor of that trust. It only can be established and funded prior to somebody turning 65. Believe me, every week I get calls from people who are over 65 or their family members looking to figure out how to protect assets that their 90-year-old parent left when they died. Things like this happen all the time, so it's important to understand what we can use this trust for and what we can't. Um, it can, we, you can also use a D4C trust or what is known as a pooled trust that has the same standards. That would allow you, if you didn't have a trust drafted, it would allow you to go into a pool, especially if you have smaller amount of assets. So let's talk a little bit about what assets will you use to fund this special needs trust. Generally speaking, it can be anything. It can be real estate, cash and investments, which are the most popular, of course. Retirement funds, however, there are special tax considerations that we are going to talk about. And life insurance that also has some, you know, some issues that you need to be aware of. Life insurance as a policy can be owned by a third-party trust, or it can have the trust as its beneficiary and just receive the proceeds of the policy once the policy pays out, which is much more common. So what should really not go into a special needs trust? In my opinion, automobiles, because they are basically rolling liability that puts the trust, get, the trust at risk if there is an accident and the asset is owned by the trust, then anything inside that trust could be at risk to pay off any liability related to that automobile. And there are practical issues around titling and maintenance and insurance. It can get very complicated. Another asset that should not go into a trust Closely held business interests. This does not mean stocks and bonds from publicly traded companies, but a family business, for example, should not be inside a trust because the trustee will have to run it. And the trustee of a special needs or a disability trust has special considerations in how an asset must benefit their beneficiary. Anything that has to be stored somewhere like a coin collection, that great Monet painting that I know you all have in your hallway, um, gold, things like that, you know, that autographed baseball that you think is worth a fortune. They're what we call unproductive assets. They don't produce any income. They may fluctuate in value, but they're difficult to trade on the open market when you need to cash out all of the assets to continue to use money to finance your person's life. 
they may have carrying costs. You may have to store them somewhere at a cost. You may have to insure them and so on. So generally speaking, those are not assets that should be owned by your special needs trust. So let's talk about, in generality, things that should be there should be things that are useful to the beneficiary and also things that conform to your state's prudent investor rule. And every state has some version of this. So things that we need to look out for and you want to be aware of if you become a trustee of a special needs trust is you, if it's a first party trust, you have to look at the establishment clause or the establishment rules around the initial investment and funding of that D4A trust. They must follow a very specific set of rules and process in order to qualify that first party D4A trust as a, as a trust under public benefits rules. This is not under state law, not state trust law. It is all about public benefits rules. You must look at the fiduciary investment standards, and I'll talk to you about that. Life insurance has tricks and traps, and there are complex issues around owning real estate in a third party or a first party special needs trust. So we're going to talk about all of that. Let's start with that first party trust or that D4A trust and the establishment. So remember, we talked about only certain people can establish this. I've had trusts come to me established by the great aunt, not on the list. So it's a parent, a grandparent, a legal guardian, or by court order. And ever since December of 2016, and you do need to look at that date, you can have the disabled individual anytime after December 13th, 2016. You have to have seed money if it's anybody but the disabled individual establishing. So the seed money can be a $1 bill, a $5 bill, a $20 bill. And generally speaking, we take that dollar and we attach it to the trust document because there will be a day when either Medicaid or Social Security may ask you for that establishment of the trust and how that happened. Or you can set up a bank account and throw that minimal amount of money in that bank account for the trust. That's a little more complicated and most people don't really want to go through that. A lot of times we're creating these trusts, but we're not ready to use them yet. In which case using that dollar bill or that $20 bill is really helpful. You want to also understand what your state law is around what we call a dry trust. That is more complicated than I can go into in this program today but it's important that you work with a qualified special needs planner to establish your first party special needs trust and your third party special needs trust. So it must be the trust creator's own money if it is the, if the trust creator is not the disabled individual. If the disabled individual is creating their trust, then they are all set. They can fund it with whatever amount they want when they're at so we, um, in, our, in our law firm, we will often um, have a sample set of instructions that we give to our trust creators. You have to be able to track 
that that money came from the trust creator. So if I'm the parent and I'm creating this first party D4A trust for my child who is disabled, maybe an adult child, I'm going to take that $20 from my own pocket and I'm going to write that into the, the end of the trust document that that money came from me as the trust creator. And that follows the chain that social security requires. All right, let's talk a little bit about the prudent investor rule. I'm gonna to talk to you a little bit about my state, Massachusetts, which requires that um, a trustee except as provided otherwise in this section who invests and manages trust assets owes a duty to the beneficiaries of a trust to comply with this prudent investor rule that's set forth in that chapter of the law. Many trust documents will opt out when drafting the trust to follow the state prudent investor rule law. That doesn't mean that a trustee can go hog wild and invest in just anything because they still have a fiduciary duty to their beneficiary to have assets be productive for that beneficiary and in their best interest. Okay. I hope that makes sense. In our state, our prudent investor rule may be expanded, restricted, or eliminated in the writing of the trust. You'll need to check your state rule to make sure that that is also possible. And in our prudent investor rule, we do mention that a trustee will be will not be liable for the investments if they are using a reasonableness standard. So even if you have waived the prudent investor rule in your SNIT, you wouldn't you wouldn't follow it strictly. I mean, the reason that we waive the prudent investor rule is because if we followed it, we would never be able to use a home in our trust, for example, for the beneficiary because it doesn't produce. And although it's a great benefit for our beneficiary, it doesn't strictly comply with the prudent investor rule. So it's a fine tightrope that you walk between providing for the beneficiary's best interest and still remaining true to your fiduciary duty. So we are going to talk a little bit about fiduciary duty in a few minutes. Um, what are some of the things that we must consider when we are deciding what investments are okay within our trust? So here are some of the factors that are the most common that you want to be thinking about as you are investing funds and, you know, other assets as well. What are the ages of the beneficiary or the beneficiaries? What is their disability? And by that, I really am talking about what is their life expectancy? You may have a 12-year-old beneficiary who, had, who is very fragile medically and who may not live a full life, who the likelihood may be small. And you may have an 80-year-old beneficiary who really is going strong and could have another 10, 15, 20 years. How much money do you have to invest? How, what's the value of the assets? 
you are looking at very different decisions when you have a hundred thousand dollars versus a million or 10 million. And really so important. What are the individual annual needs for the beneficiary? How much income do you need to produce? Are you going to be digging into principal every year? How long is this trust going to last, given that your beneficiary very often will be unrealistic about what the trust can pay for? So I will often give an example of, you know, someone who has a $100,000 trust and wants a $50,000 car. The trust may need to last as many years as we can stretch it out. Let's say we want to try to get 10 to 15 years out of this trust. Remember, the trusts were meant to be supplemental. You may consider an option of leasing the car, having the car in your beneficiary's name, but paying the lease, making that lease payment every year, every month. That might be a way to affordably provide the vehicle that they need without taking $50,000 out of the principal, just like that. So let's talk about real estate. Should a special needs trust own real estate? That's a tricky question. Here are some of the things that you need to think about. Is this going to be a personal residence or an investment piece? I would never have real estate as an investment vehicle in a special needs trust. That's just me personally. Um, that never meets my test of productivity for the beneficiary. Is there enough money in the trust for maintenance and upkeep? Remember that your beneficiary may not be able to be out there mowing lawns, um, shoveling snow, managing when a toilet breaks or an appliance goes haywire. These are the kinds of things that you need to consider. Will you need someone to come in and clean? What skills does your beneficiary have to be able to maintain that home? Will you be charging rent to the beneficiary or to other people that live there? And will you allow other people to live there? Trustee as landlord is very often a tough, tough, um, situation. Once somebody has rights, you know, many states are very liberal towards renters, towards lessees. If you're the lessor, you have to do a lot of work to get somebody out of that home. Is your beneficiary likely to let other people move in there and not tell you? <laughs> There's a lot to consider here. Is there a Section 8 voucher involved? That is going to require the lessor or the owner, which would be the trust and the trustee, to seek an accommodation in order to be able to continue getting that rent from the federal government. Are there any other options for home ownership? Can you distribute out a down payment and can your beneficiary own the home themselves and maintain a mortgage and make those um, payments? There are a lot of situations out there where disability trusts come into play. And you may want to consider, you know, renting 
a home instead of buying a home. It just may be more secure where you pay the rent, but you are not the landlord. Okay, some traps for the unwary. Um, D4A trust payback. If you've got an unproductive asset stuck inside this first party trust and your beneficiary passes away, that home is not going to be able to be passed on to, you know, any other generations or any remainder men, remainder beneficiaries, even though it may, you may want it to be. So you will have to cash it out, possibly at a fire sale to be able to have the money to pay back the government. Again, I'm talking about, you know, will there be additional residents? Are we talking about a 12 year old whose parents need to live with them and they want you to buy that house? Um, Will they want to move in caregivers? What's the liability around that? And will they want roommates? Will they have love interests that they want to move in and so forth? And then the trustee can be liable for waste, waste of this asset. And that means really taking that hard look as we discussed about maintenance. Um, I am in a situation right now where we had to unfortunately evict our beneficiary from a home that was owned by the trust and it is uninhabitable at this point. So the asset has been really, I mean, I don't want to say destroyed, but it its value has diminished just enormously. Um, so here are some tricks though. We talked about the traps. Let's talk about some tricks around home ownership or real estate ownership. Somehow the housing authorities do allow Section 8 vouchers to pay rent into the trust. And that where that's where those accommodations come in and those waivers. We want to talk about that if you are meeting with your advisor. You want to have a conversation about whether that is, you know, a good way to stretch those trust dollars and those trust assets. Personal residences are non-countable assets for public benefits purposes. So remember we talked about should your person own this home individually? Non-countable as long as they live there. Something to think about. Some families are hiring vendor agencies to staff their homes. And if there's enough money to do so, you could actually set this up in a very productive way for your beneficiary. And families are coming up with other collaborative ways all the time to own and staff housing. So this is an area which is changing by the minute and in a good way. Um, housing is a crisis in our country. It's especially and doubly so for people with disabilities. This is an area you'll want to sit with your advisor and your planner and really think through all of the ideas that you might have around housing and home ownership, and whether your trust can be a part of that or should be a part of that. All right, life insurance. Using life insurance can be a great way to save on estate taxes, to wall off a valuable asset from creditors and public benefits agencies for you and your disabled person, especially if it's your child, and it can fund your SNT. But they must be drafted carefully because there are 
sometimes um, tax provisions that don't marry well with special needs provisions. And those are known often as the gifting provisions or crummy provisions. Um, you also want to be thoughtful about those lifetime distribution standards as well. So there's a lot to consider here. Again, sitting with your planner, knowledgeable planner, is going to be key. Okay, retirement plan provisions. Oof. Um, we've got a lot of information out there for you on the SECURE Act and how that changed retirement uh, required minimum distributions and also retirement plans and the disabled retirement plans and the medically fragile or critically ill retirement plans and special needs trusts. Something to consider. Most trusts do not qualify to get that stretch over the lifetime of the disabled person. You really want to, if you have anything over uh, $100,000 of retirement assets coming to your disabled beneficiary, you want to sit with someone who's qualified to do the tax analysis and the special needs analysis to figure out how to draft a trust that can get that stretch. Um, if you make a mistake, there's a 50% penalty on the uh, tax that should have been paid. And the, I'm sorry, the, um, the actual distributions that should have come out on time. Um, there is an IRS form 5329 that allows you to beg forgiveness. And if you are not a professional fiduciary or family member fiduciary, very often, if you come clean and you find the mistake, you will get forgiveness. Um, you still may need to pay some, you're still going to need to pay the income tax. And, you know, there may be some penalty assessed, but you may not get the 50% penalty. All right. So your trust is funded. Now what? It's time to talk about actually running and managing this trust. So who runs it? Well, that's the trustee. And in many cases, for those of you listening to this program, that's going to be you. If you are the trustee, we're going to talk about what can a special needs trust pay for? It's the number one question that trustees ask me when they come in for support. So you need to look at your trust document right away. Those distribution standards are written right into your trust document. And then you need to think about in the, you know, in the four corners of that document that what it allows you to do. Are you distributing cash to the beneficiary or in-kind distributions, meaning you are paying for something on their behalf? Let me explain the difference. Your beneficiary has a cell phone bill to Verizon, whoever, Comcast, whoever it is in your state. It's $100. So you have a choice. You can pay directly to Verizon that $100 bill, or you can give $100 to your beneficiary and they can pay the bill. There is a huge difference in how that distribution is looked at by public benefits agencies depending on which way you decide to go. In-kind distributions are always better 
And you really should have a rule of never distributing cash. There are going to be times when you have a beneficiary like I do in our, in our uh, special needs family services company, we administer many trusts, all special needs, disability, or involving someone with a disability or a special need. There comes a time when somebody, you know, you occasionally have a beneficiary who is truly on no public benefits and you know this for sure. You are able to verify. And in that case, you can choose to distribute out a support payment because your trust was drafted properly and you have the flexibility as a trustee to decide whether you want to distribute cash or not. That's going to be the rare scenario. Typically speaking, you may not know every benefit that your beneficiary is on or entitled to. And even if you do know, and by the way, they don't always tell you and they don't always have a good relationship with their trustee. It is a very strained relationship, even at its best. If you don't know everything about your beneficiary, then you need to assume that they have a benefit that would be um, harmed or that they would lose if you distributed cash. There's also something called in-kind support and maintenance from Social Security. So this is only for people on SSI But if you pay for food or shelter or both, then your beneficiary has a duty to report that and they are going to get a reduction in their SSI benefit. Again, only SSI, not SSDI. So you also want to look at your document and make sure that it does not have you leave you with any duties to remaindermen. Most well-drafted special needs trusts or disability trusts are going to tell you that you only need to consider your primary beneficiary, not your remaindermen. If you don't have that language in your trust, you need to look at what your state law says regarding your duties to remaindermen. Okay. Let's talk about SNITs versus D4As, because there's a little difference in the flexibility of distributions there. With SNITs, you have broader discretion, and it's really in the trustee's view whether it benefits the beneficiary or not. Um, you can have multiple beneficiaries possible with a third-party SNT and you, that you can't have with a first-party SNT. So I'll give you an example. Let's say that you want to um, support your person to make a trip to Disney World, okay? A request that comes up more often than you would think. But they want to take three people with them. These three people are not medically necessary. Maybe one of them is. Um, But you have the funds. And in your opinion, as trustee, this would bring such great joy And it serves a purpose for your beneficiary. They're not being taken advantage of. They, you know, really need a social life. There's a lot of reasons why you might decide to do this. If you have 
a properly drafted, flexible SNT, you get to make that decision as the trustee, okay? Same thing with paying roommates expenses. It may be to the benefit of your person that you want to pay for someone else to live there with them who's not providing support, direct support, but who's just great company and a good social life for your person. If you have a flexibly drafted third-party trust, you as the trustee can make that decision. But when it comes to D4As or first-party trusts, we go by the Program Operations Manual Rules, POMS. And recently, this changed our sole benefit rule to a primary benefit rule, um, but you can still just have one beneficiary. And what that means is that you need to primarily benefit your person, your, your beneficiary, but you can benefit other people in an ancillary way. So that is a, a shift for us, and it's a good one. It can only be an incidental, you know, or maybe what we would call a de minimis benefit. And let me give you an example. Paying for the cable, TV, and internet bill for an apartment that has three people in it. If your person really wants internet and your person really wants cable TV, in the past, we would have considered that we had to split that bill three ways. Currently, under this primary benefit rule, you can pay for that bill individually for your person and not have to collect $30 each from the other people that live in there, that live in, in the apartment or in the home. Um, you buy a TV that everybody watches. You don't need everybody to pitch in and participate. I used to use this example as a stereo system, but that doesn't exist anymore. Um, currently, there's no SSA penalty for excessively benefiting others, but it could be a violation of the trustee's duty. And then, in my opinion, um, SSA or Medicaid, your state Medicaid agency, would be justified in disqualifying the trust as a D4A either deeming it countable or deeming the assets, excess benefit of others as a disqualifying transfer because you are violating your fiduciary duty. Um, so you just really want to understand you know, what you're doing. You could not make that trip to Disney and pay for three other people. When I had someone that needed to, that, that wanted to go to Disney and needed a person to go with them. In fact, this person was a lot, needed a lot of support, um, had some real behavior issues. We needed two people to go. I just documented it with clinical team that this was the case. And therefore I could pay for those two other individuals to go. Okay, let's talk a little bit about working with your beneficiary and how that is gonna go. You have a duty to report trust assets and distributions to public benefits agencies, yes or no? No. So this is the beneficiary's duty. They have to report this, but they're going to come to you and they're going to ask you for the information. And therefore, you have a duty to give it to your beneficiary. 
or their guardian or their conservator, whoever, whoever is doing the reporting or their rep payee. So this is going to be things like social security, um, Medicaid, your state Medicaid agency, possibly another state agency that is working with your person on a waiver program or your local housing authority. So many beneficiaries of SNTs and D4As are not capable of this level of advocacy with public benefits agencies. And then it's the trustee's choice, whether you wanna step out of your trustee role, step beyond that role and report for them. You may even charge extra for the service. Many pooled trusts, D4C trusts do. They will actually ask you if you want them to take this responsibility on, which they will for a small fee every year. So in our state, I work closely with the plan of Massachusetts and they address this right in their entrance documents. All right, the next thing that's going to happen once you take over a trust, or especially if it's a new trust, there's always a list of requests when a bunch of money comes into the beneficiary's life. And very often they don't distinguish or understand the difference between them receiving the money or the money going into a trust. They will tell you time and time again, that's my money. That is mine. You can't tell me what to do with it. So this is a conversation that goes on for many years. For most individuals, they've been living impoverished previously, and any small amount of money looks like a just a goddamn doggone fortune to them, right? Um, if it's a settlement, sometimes an inheritance, there may be other family members who feel entitled to those benefits or to benefit from that lump sum because they've been supporting this person and doing all these things for them. It's important to set a budget every year. We call this a spending plan because budget seems so harsh, but spending plan sounds fun, like you're actually spending the money. Um, and, and that determines how much of the income or principal that you're willing to spend annually. Remember those other factors that we talked about? So you need to work with your beneficiary and ask them what their wish list is. And then you have to explain and be very open with your process. Auto payments can possibly be your best friend, but you wanna carefully figure out how to do that. We've backed away in our office from doing auto payments because you have to work with your beneficiary to really tell you every month that the bill is okay. For example, I've had beneficiaries who've added things onto their cell phone bill. They've given phone lines to girlfriends or, you know, kids or other people. And we have to be aware of that so that we can understand whether we want to make the decision as trustees to benefit those other people or not, or whether we even can, depending on the type of trust. You need a reserve for emergencies because they always come, always. You are also going to have people who are going to obsess about this. They're going to obsess about getting their hands on this money and they're gonna make up things to spend it on just because they are obsessed with spending it. 
that's not going to be everybody, but that's going to be some people. So you need to determine and set expectations around contact and how they can request distributions from you, even if you are a family member trustee. Those boundaries will be breached time and time again. I've had beneficiaries who have called their sibling trustees work and reported them for all kinds of crazy behaviors um, and have just harassed and shown up on their doorstep and it has become so uncomfortable for them. If you are not a family member and you are a professional doing this or a more remote or removed person, do not parent or befriend your beneficiary. You need you need that boundary. You need you need a little wall between you. We use something called TrueLink cards. I would um, look them up if I were you. TrueLink Financial sets them out, and there's a lot of information about that as a way to offer your beneficiary some independence. You can move small amounts of money onto a card that they can use to pay for some things, not everything. How do we work with the difficult beneficiaries? And not everybody is difficult, but a lot are. Set those expectations early. Use forms and establish a procedure for requests early on. Don't try to change this three years into it. It's a lot harder. What is your preferred contact? Do you want them to text you? phone you, email you. I don't know anybody that sells a fax machine, but maybe fax you, whatever it is. You can use the funds to pay for a life coach, a care manager, um, a social worker, other interested parties. They're just for the person, just for your disabled beneficiary to help them with planning and expenditures and concepts around this trust and how it works. They may feel more comfortable having somebody just for them that works for them. You may pay them, but a lot of these folks are going to be very clear with you that they are there for that beneficiary and that's the relationship that they will have. People will often ask, if I'm a trustee, am I a mandated reporter? Um, when should I seek help? How do I seek help? So in our state in Massachusetts, we have the Disabled Persons Protection Commission for adults. Um, we also have elder protective services. You're going to need to understand in your state what you are responsible to do under state law. It's unlikely that as a trustee, you are ever a mandated reporter, but you may still want to report someone living in an abusive situation where they are being defrauded, where they are, you know, a hoarder and in an unsafe situation in their home. There are a lot of issues that come up and you will get to hear all about them because people will ask you for things and you'll get to know what's going on there. You also need to understand in your trust document how to resign because you may get to a point where you are just ready to quit and who and how does the next trustee get selected? Sometimes it, we are so grateful in our office that we are, you know, three of us. And we also have several levels of committees that we use. This helps us from burning out 
some people are very intense and we cannot, you know, face them time and time again, week after week, year after year, just one of us. We have had people screaming at us, swearing at us, threatening us. Um, I'd like to say it's rare. It's not. So this is an undertaking that you really need to understand the full brunt of it and the concepts around it. All right. From that to tax issues. So you need to warn and inform your beneficiary that they may now need to file a tax return when they probably have not needed to in the past. Why is that? We'll talk about that in a minute. You need to decide whether you're going to help with these individual tax returns, whether you're going to pay for the tax preparation and or even pay the individual taxes due. Hint, hint, that's another distribution on behalf of the beneficiary. Don't assume that your CPA is going to understand how to prepare a tax return for a trust, especially a third party or a first party SNT. They probably don't see this very often, if at all. And you're probably going to need to instruct them, or you're going to need your advisor who understands all of this to instruct your CPA that first time around. Um, all first party trusts are what we know, what, what we call grantor trusts. Um, some SNTs are grantor trusts, some are not. Tax treatment and reporting with a grantor trust are on a grantor trust statement. And that carries out the in income tax liability to the beneficiary. In complex trusts, namely third-party SNTs, um, tax treatment and reporting are on a K-1, which is kind of like a 1099, only it looks more complicated than that. And those K-1s get issued to the beneficiary and then they have to pay tax. So each distribution carries out ordinary income to the beneficiary. If you distributed out $1,000 on or um, to or for the benefit of your beneficiary in one year, that's going to carry out a, with that distribution ordinary income for $1,000, okay? So the tax liability for somebody who is low income is probably going to be de minimis, if anything. Um, but as your trust carries out larger amounts of distributions and lar larger amount of tax liability, then that could change the tax scenario for your beneficiary. Retirement plans that are inherited by the trust must meet minimum um, distribution rules and you have to understand whether your trust is an accumulation trust or a conduit trust um, and again beyond the scope of this um, we definitely will need you to work with your tax advisor on this 
And remember, there's a 50% penalty if your required minimum distribution is not met. So what do you do if the trustee is not doing a proper job? Um, first of all, they have a duty to account and make records available. What does your trust document say about your duty to account? And what does your state law say? Do they follow the uniform trust code? Are there protections built into the terms of the trust? It's another thing you want to know. Um, who has the right to remove and replace trustees? Who has the right to receive accounts? Do you have a trust protector? Is there some language in there that has another appointed person to stand in and assist with some of these duties? You really need to understand what role everybody is playing, how to remove a trustee not doing a proper job, and who that person is that could do that and how to appoint the next trustee. As a last resort, you can always go to your state probate court and you can work with a guardian, a conservator, a POA agent, or a next friend to try to get that accomplished. So what do you do if things were done wrong previously under the old trustee or in general? What if the trust was drafted incorrectly? Maybe it was a failed attempt at a D4A and you didn't have that chain of process that you're supposed to have. What if there is a distribution standard in there that says health, education, maintenance, and support or other distribution um, drafting errors or standard drafting errors? What if the trust is drafted with overly restrictive provisions instead of having that flexibility that we talked about? What if there's a laundry list of permitted distributions that is definitive and says you must distribute for these things and it's not merely illustrative? What if there's a prohibition on reducing public benefits? So for example, you, you may never, ever, 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 ever distribute for anything that a public benefit should pay for or could pay for. What if you have a burden on the trustee to determine and apply for all possible programs, services, and public benefits? I would never take on that responsibility as a trustee. You never know if your beneficiary will work with you on those things, and you may not be able to accomplish this. This could be a frustrated purpose. Um, you, you could not meet your fiduciary duty under that trust document. What if the trust has been administered incorrectly previous to you? Distributions were made for purposes that are not permitted under the terms of the trust or distributions were made to persons other than beneficiaries. Believe me, this happens all the time. What if excessive trustee fees were charged? Some attorneys will charge an attorney rate to manage a trust that is not allowed under most state, if not every state law. What if there's, there's been loans or borrowing from the trust? What if there's been commingling of assets, trust assets and individual assets? What if the beneficiary's own money has gone into a third-party trust? I can tell you right now that would forever taint the trust under the law 
and it would not be useful any longer. You can't fix that. What if the D4A establishment rules were not followed? And what if a trustee made a mistake and did not comply with retirement plan minimum distribution rules? So are there fixes for all of this? We need to look at our trust document and we need to see if there are powers of amendment inside the trust and if we have someone with the authority to amend. We may be able to, depending on your state law, do a non-judicial, meaning not going to court, trust modification to fix some of these things that we've talked about, but not all of them. More things can get fixed by going to court and petitioning the court to assist. That's, as you can imagine, an expensive and long process with no guaranteed outcome. Some state statutes have a decanting rule or a decanting law, which says that we can take money out of this trust and put it into another trust. There are some ways that you can cure distributions and transfers, but you're going to have an issue around what we call nunc pro tunc, meaning now for then. We want to back up the date of those transfers to you know a point where they never existed and never happened. And many public benefits agencies will not accept that even if the court orders it. Okay, I don't want you to be completely overwhelmed with this. Many individuals who are not professionals undertake this as a um, loving duty to their beneficiary who may be a family member or a close family friend. Many professionals take this on and don't have the requisite understanding or um, education to really do a great job at this. But you can acquire these skills by listening to programs like this, by attending more programs, and by seeking out in your state qualified individuals who can advise you. Those costs can be borne by the trust as long as they're reasonable. Know when to get out. If you are feeling very uncomfortable, like this is not for you, there are a lot of folks out there who do this work and do it very well. Okay, that's it for now. I hope you've enjoyed this program. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.